0: to take away my reproach among the people. Father, we thank You for Your Word in which we can now consider. We ask that You would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives, that You would come by Your Spirit to give us great insight as to who You are and how You act, how You work for redemption throughout this world, and how You bless those who are hurting. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve Saint, who is the son of Nate Saint, the missionary who was killed along with Jim Elliott and three others by the Wyanobi Indians, said that moments after his father was killed, the Indians saw hazy figures among the tree lines singing. Months later, these tribesmen who had come to Christ listened to a missionary's record playing a choir singing hymns the natives immediately became agitated as they recognized the music. They said that was the music that they had heard from those hazy figures. And Steve Saint concludes that it must have been angels there at the death of his father. Herbert Lockyer, who wrote All the Angels in the Bible, recounts a personal experience when he was in Kenya preaching at a missionary school. There was a man in the congregation who would accept Christ that day. In fact, after the service, he spent some time with this man. And this man told Locklear why he had come to hear him. He said earlier, he and others had decided to invade the school compound in order to kill and to capture the missionary children. When they made their way up the hill in darkness, they were confronted suddenly by by men in white robes surrounding the school with swords on fire. Of course, we see angelic intervention in the Bible. These stories remind me of the story of Elisha and his servant. When Elisha's servant's eyes were opened and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. It also reminds me of the story of Balaam. Numbers chapter 22, when the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand. And we see these angelic encounters throughout Scripture. We see the angelic messengers to Abraham and to Hagar and those who would look for righteousness in Sodom, the angel who would pass over Egypt during the 10th plague. There are angels throughout Scripture, but at no time do we see so many appearances of angels as during the entrance of the Savior into the world. An angel will announce, as we'll see today, the birth of John the prophet. An angel will announce to Mary that she will give birth to a son. An angel will assure jo- Joseph that Mary is telling the truth. An angel will announce to the shepherds the Savior's birth. Angels will sing to God in the Bethlehem sky. An angel will warn Joseph to escape with his family into Egypt. You see, angels will announce His coming and proclaim His birth and rejoice in His appearing. And I think in doing so, they send a clear message to us that the One who has come into this world is not simply another heavenly messenger. In fact, He is the one whom the heavenly messengers serve and adore. He is far above them. In fact, He Himself is the Lord of hosts as they come to announce His arrival. Of course, it has been some time from when God last spoke to when this activity begins. It's been 400 years. 400 years since God last spoke to His people, since He last sent an angel Commission a prophet or appeared by revelation 400 years of darkness and silence I assume that God's people certainly called out to him during that time but he would not a- answer all they received was heavenly silence and heavy oppression and a time of deep darkness Luke, I think, highlights the darkness here in verse 5 when he says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, this is he is sometimes called Herod the Great. He would rule from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. and was a very accomplished ruler. He was very gifted and very well liked amongst the, the Roman leaders, Herod out there in Judea, reigning over this land. He was an incredible architect. In fact, he would build palaces and temples and other amazing structures. His chief accomplishment, of course, is Herod's temple, in which he refurbished and reconstructed the Jewish temple. He would do so with 10,000 Jewish laborers. The temple will be made of imported marble overlaid with sheets of gold, each marble stone being 36 feet long, 12 feet wide, 12 feet high, one stone weighing as much as a 747 jumbo jet. The ancient historian Josephus writes, Being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that you were compelled to avert your eyes. The temple appeared from a great distance away to be like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. In fact, he built this temple, and you know what he built next? His house right next to the temple. To kind of communicate there are two people who live in the neighborhood, right? There's God and his neighbor Herod. And this is the kind of man he was. He was a a megalomaniac, insanely jealous of his own power. As the high priest rose in prominence, he had him drowned. The problem was that the high priest happened to be his wife's brother. She didn't take too kindly to that, so he had his wife killed and for good measure his mother-in-law. As he grew older in life, he had his two sons killed. And then five days before his own death, knowing his death was close, he would have his last and third son executed. In fact, right on his deathbed, immediately prior to the death of Herod the Great, he had his troops arrest a number of prominent Jews in order that when he died, at the same time, those Jews would be executed in order to ensure that there would be weeping in Jerusalem that accompanied his death. He was an insane man insanely jealous of power. And Luke tells us that what is about to happen happened in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. He wants to highlight the time in which God's people are waiting for Him to work. It is a time of deep darkness. Even though the last time God spoke through the prophet of Malachi, He said in chapter 4 and verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise. Well, they've been waiting and waiting And now they find themselves in darkness, but we find here in this story, that the sun is about to rise. In fact, Zechariah, who we'll read about in a moment, will sing a song later in chapter 1. Note verse 78 of Luke 71, in which he, evidently aware of Malachi's prophecy, says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from high on high. He's referring to the Savior who's coming. He is the sunrise of righteousness that God is bringing upon us. But before He does, before the Savior comes... God will send a forerunner, a prophet, one to prepare the people for him. And he's going to do it in a mirac- miraculous way. God could have certainly called a scribe or a priest into the office of a prophet like he did with Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and many others. But, but uh, the Savior was too important just to get another prophet to announce his coming. And so God is going to act in this majestic and and marvelous and miraculous way in order to bring forth one who is truly unique in order to prepare God's people for the coming Savior. We speak, of course, of John the baptizer or John the prophet. And in his, uh, this announcement of his birth, of his conception, we see God's power in a miraculous birth. I want you to understand the power of God as we look at this text. You notice again, verse 5 says, In the day of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. There's a good contrast there in verse 5. We go from Herod to great to Zachariah the nobody. And he even mentions his wife, Mrs. Nobody. Right? Not important at all. They're not of the elite priesthood. They're just of the division of Abijah. He would be live far away from Jerusalem. He's of no significance whatsoever. He's just one of the 24 divisions of the priests. David would divide the priesthood into 24 divisions based upon the 24 grandsons of Aaron, one of those grandsons named Abijah, of which Zechariah belonged to that tribe, to that division. And so here he is. He's working in Jerusalem. These 24 divisions, divisions would take turns in working the temple. And you would spend two weeks there working in the temple, and then the rest of the time you would go back home where you make your living. And so we come to this time when it's Zechariah's division who's now working at the temple. And one of the things that they do in the temple is, is that, um, well, before we get there, you notice there's actually a description of Zechariah here in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And so he may be a nobody and his wife may be a nobody, but they were righteous before God. No one else maybe take note of them, but God certainly took note of them. In fact, I don't know if you saw in verse 5 that Elizabeth is the da- from the daughters of Aaron. That means her daddy was a priest and her granddaddy was a priest and her brothers are priests and her uncles are priests and she takes her faith very seriously, along with with zachariah and they 're faithfully serving god we 'll see in a moment that they 're older people. The picture in my mind is is like an old country pastor pastoring a, a main street church in, in the middle of, of nowhere. He and his wife faithfully serving year after year after year, perhaps approaching the age of retirement, righteously following God. He says in verse six that they 're blameless doesn 't mean they 're perfect. It means they're not open to accusation. They're not open to scandal. They just want to serve God. They are righteous and blameless. But they're probably not righteous and blameless in the sight of men. For you know, somewhat shockingly, at least to the original readers, verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We expect to read this righteous and blameless couple had nine kids, or that the God prospered them and blessed their home abundantly. But that's not what we read. We read that they are childless. They're unable to have kids. They are missing the gift of children. And there's great sadness in there. There's great sadness for them. We've celebrated that gift today, haven't we? We rejoice that God gives life and gives children. And children, despite what cultures say, are blessings to families. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had no such blessing. They had no child, and, and many people struggle with this and know the pain and the sadness it is to not have a child. But let me suggest to you that their pain is compounded. Because not only do they not have the gift of the child, they have to bear the shame that was associated with childlessness in that culture. You see, one who is childless is assumed to be under a curse from God, under some type of judgment from God. Elizabeth later will refer to her childlessness as my reproach. And so there was undoubtedly an assumption that something was wrong with them. They were married as teens, and one year later, no child. Another later, year later, no child. And five years down the line, no child. And people began to wonder, wonder what their sin is. I wonder what's going on. Inside that home. In fact, there are seven types of people, according to the ancient Jewish rabbis, who are not expected to be close to God. One of those types was a Jew, a Jew whose wife had no child. You could actually legally divorce her. It was this, uh, a shame that's associated with it. And then you compound that with the insecurity of it, because they didn't have 401Ks and, and Social Security. You know their retirement plan? Have lots of kids. And then we get old, our kids take care of us. Well, they didn't have that. And they, all of this is being compounded as Luke kind of paints this picture of this childless couple, plus the suggestion that it's most likely their fault. And then you see at the end of verse 7, and they are both advanced in years. They're older. Their hope is gone. And so Luke here just sets the scene for us. And now we pick up Zechariah serving in Jerusalem with his division. Verse 8, now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty... His division would have been about 1,000 priests, maybe 750. If you have 1,000 priests serving for two weeks, how do you decide who gets to go into the temple and burn incense? Well, you cast lots. As we see in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This would be the highest honor that a priest would ever have. You would do this once in your lifetime, and many priests never had the chance to do it. You would actually enter the temple uh, Why everyone else would stay outside. You would draw as close to God as anyone can other than the high priest. And here's Zachariah, who's perhaps been a priest for 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And he comes down for his two weeks of service and they cast lots. And, and every time, his name is not called. And he goes home every time. And Elizabeth said, did you get to go in this time? No, not this time. No, not this It's like gym class. Never getting picked, right? He's a loser, loser, loser. He never gets to go in. And perhaps his hope of this great privilege is almost lost. And one time at his old age, he hears his name. Zachariah is chosen. And so he is able to enter on this big and wonderful day to burn incense as verse 9 tells us. This would be a picture of the prayers of God's people being offered to God. As the incense rises, it symbolizes the prayers of God's people worshiping him. Why God's people prayed outside, note verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, to kind of picture this, what this must have been like. That Zechariah would would don his priestly garments, which would symbolize the purity, and he would walk through the temple courts and eventually Pushing his way or, or going through the crowd. Perhaps they parted for him. And he would walk up the stairs to the temple as everyone watched. And he would walk to the brazen altar where the sacrifices were offered. And he would take coals out of the brazen altar and put it into a golden bowl. And with this golden bowl, he would walk up to those golden doors and enter the temple. The doors would be shut behind him as he stood alone in a room 60 feet by 30 feet wide. To his right would be a table of show, the showbread. To his left, the golden lampstand, and flickering in that candlelight, which was the gave the only light in this massive room, was a 60-foot veil embroidered upon it two giant cherubim from gold and purple and blue and scarlet, guarding the entrance to God. Down at the bottom of that veil, right at the other end of the holy place, was the golden horned altar of incense. It would be glistening there in the candlelight. And there Zachariah stands alone in this dim room while all the people outside are praying. In fact, as soon as he would enter, a gong would have been struck, which would have been heard all over Jerusalem as a a symbol that it is a a signify time to stop your work, to get on your knees and bow. And a a powerful quiet would come over this bustling city as this man stood in this very large and dim room. He would immediately walk up to the altar and he would take the coals out of the bowl and, and pour them out onto the altar. There, spreading them out, waiting for another signal. When that signal would happen, it meant outside the temple a lamb was being sacrificed, and when that sim- sim, uh, symbol was, was heard, he would pour out the incense upon the coals. And so can you imagine him, Zechariah, with these kind of old trembling hands and his heart pounding as he lifts the incense, listening for the signal, and then slowly pouring the incense over the hot coals and immediately hissing and crackling as a huge column of smoke would ascend right before him and the smell of frankincense would fill the temple the aroma swirling around him perhaps he looks up and watches the cloud of incense ascend to the ceiling signifying the prayers of God's people ascending to him in heaven perhaps even uttering one last prayer and it's at that time he realizes he's not alone there is someone there with him and it is not another priest notice verse 11 and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He looks down there, and perhaps three feet in front of him, he sees an angel. Not a vision, but an angel standing right there. And he was not happy about it. Right, you notice verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. He was. Panicked. He was terrified. He's overwhelmed like Daniel at the riverside or the women at the tomb or John on the island of Patmos. They're all fearful when an angel appears to them. When you see someone who belongs to another world, fear comes upon you evidently. It's interesting to me that this fascination with angels in our culture and it seems to be much too flippant, much too casual. I read recently that, that there is a study that 70% of Americans believe in angels. Which I think is pretty good. Uh, Somewhat troubling is that 32% of Americans have said they have encountered an angel. And the study went on to explain, well, what was that encounter like? And many people said, well, the angel came to give me a message from God. Uh, Some people said that the angel shows up when I'm lost to give me directions. Uh, Another uh, said that, in fact, several people said angels help them find parking places which i got to think has got to be the worst job. I mean, you got to think, an angel, come on, parking duty again? Still, one woman said an angel showed up to help her bake a chicken casserole. And still another lady said that an angel came to help her lose weight. She even wrote a book about it called The Angel's Little Dieting Book, which I forbid you from buying. Right? <laughs> See, when I read the Bible, I seem to get a different message. When an angel shows up, kind of the first thing he says is, don't die on me. Just hold on, right? (laughs) Stay with me here. Not, you need some more cheese in that casserole. I think we're way too flippant about this. We see, in fact, when, when Samson's dad, Manoah, encountered an angel, he runs around saying, we're all going to die. We have a visitor from heaven. This is it. We're all dead. And yet we're so, ca- John MacArthur, he, he, he says that a pastor friend of his said an angel often appears to him while he shaves. In which uh, MacArthur responded to him by saying, and you keep shaving. Um, we, we're just way too casual and we don't see this here in the Bible. There's terror, he's terrified of that angel. It tells us that God is holy and those who stand in his presence are holy. Well, in response to the, the fear of the angel, you notice uh, what the angel says in verse 13, perhaps causing Zachariah even more alarm. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayers have been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Fear not. God has heard you. You're getting a son. Which makes me think, was he praying for a son? It was kind of a strange time maybe to pray for a son. Maybe not. Maybe he thought, well, I'm just going to pray one last time. I mean, this is my golden opportunity. I'll never be in this room again. I'm standing at the altar of incense. I'm just going to go for it. And, and, and maybe he prays. Maybe Elizabeth, when she sends him down to Jerusalem, she says, now remember, honey, if you get chosen, don't forget to pray. And maybe she doesn't finish the sentence because she knows it's kind of foolish. And they're, they're old, perhaps as old as 80, some suggest, maybe 60 Maybe he pats her on the head and says, I know, honey, kissing her. I'll pray. Maybe. I think it's probably far more likely that he's not praying for a son. I, I, I think he's probably moved past that, that personal pain. And I think he's there standing as a priest representing God's people. And I think he's praying for a savior. I think he's praying for a son, but not his son. I think he's a faithful priest in the time of Herod, the king. And he's praying for the deliverance of God's people. Oh, God, will you deliver us? How long will you wait? When will the sunrise come upon us? Will you answer us? And the angel shows up and says, yes, God is answering you. We have heard your prayers. He has heard your prayers. You will bear a son. And he predicts this son that is going to be given to an old couple who happen to be barren. Isn't that interesting? That this angel is not just simply predicting a birth. He's predicting an impossible birth. A birth that cannot come around uh, by natural ability. Elizabeth is way too old to have a child. And to compound upon that, she's also barren. It's impossible to have a child except for God. In fact, God is wanting to show us here His power and His might. He could have chosen John to come away uh, about a hundred different ways, and He chose this particular couple. In fact, you'll see this same angel will say to Mary in chapter 1 and verse 36, Behold, your Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. She says, Mary, God can do this because He did it in Elizabeth. By the way, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible for God. You see, what the, what God is choosing this couple specifically in order to show his power and his might that nothing is too hard for him, which will be incredibly helpful for little Mary as she considers what God is doing in her life. I want you to, to realize that, that this suffering that this family endured was not because of their sin. Uh, sometimes we suffer because of sin, but, but not always. That they, they went through a very difficult time. Elizabeth is barren for one reason. So that God might display his power through her. That he might display his might in her. Her physical ability becomes the perfect stage for God to demonstrate his supernatural ability. You're going to have a son. In fact, not any son. A a miracle boy. A prophet of God. I know there are times in which we wish we were making the plans. We kind of wish we had a seat in heaven to kind of decide how our life is going to go, that sometimes God's control and providence is difficult and mysterious and uncertain. The story tells us that God has it all planned out, though, that he knows what he is doing. And sometimes we are deprived because God is planning to do something so much better for us than we could even imagine. God's power is beautifully displayed here. But we also see, secondly, God's faithfulness in sending a prophet. Again, look in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And so I think here, at this point, Zechariah kind of moves from fear to shock. I'm sorry, what did you just say? I'm going to have a son? Yes, you're going to have a son. And by the way, according to verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. You see what children bring? Joy. You know what children are? Children are a blessing. You said you're going to have a son... And that's going to bring you joy. That's going to bring you gladness. God is concerned about the joy in this servant's heart. And not just for Him. You read on in verse 14. And, and many will rejoice at His birth. And they will rejoice not simply because they're happy for Zachariah and Elizabeth. They will rejoice because of what John will mean. That he will mean that salvation is near. That the sunrise is soon to rise. In fact, the angel will go on to describe John's ministry. He's not any son at all. He starts by saying, Saying, uh, referring to John's greatness in verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. So he will be great, but he will be great before God. So his greatness is not that he can hit a curveball or that he'll be famous or rich or well-respected among his peers. He won't have any of that. He will live as a desert monk. He will not be respected at all. And his ministry will last about six months long. He'll get about 15 minutes. And we would look at something like that, and we would say, that's not great. But in God's eyes, it is. God has a different understanding of greatness than I think we often do. We probably do well to throw away our deceitful aspirations of greatness and realize that greatness is in the reach of all of us. Greatness that is recognized by angels and God Himself. I think this is what we want for, for ourselves, for our children. Don't we want this for our kids, not beauty and riches or fame and esteem. We want things that are a thousand times greater, namely the grace of God upon themselves if they seek after him. John will be great. Notice also he speaks of John's devotion. He says here in verse 15, And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So he says we're going to set John aside. He's not going to drink wine. He's not going to have strong drink. He's going to be devoted to God. Now to be a Jew in this day, what you would just in religious observance drink alcohol for the Passover, and alcohol will be served. But for John, he has this special devotion. Many think it's a Nazarite vow, which we see in the Old Testament. That's not a Nazarite. Nazarene, a Nazarene is someone from Nazareth, a Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word to separate. And so John, like Samson was supposed to, or like Samuel did for a while, takes this vow upon him, perhaps for life, that he will not drink, uh, be under the influence of alcohol. Rather, you notice he is going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is going to come and influence him, going to come and rule in his life, because he's going to have an incredible mission. You notice when the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him? Even from his mother's womb. Holy Spirit, unlike anything else we've ever seen, is gonna come and begin to, to work in John's life before he's born. The reason is, is he's gonna begin his ministry before he's born, as we'll see in the coming weeks. There's incredible, extraordinary uh, power of God as this man is devoted to God. And by the way, I, I don't know how to read that understanding that the Spirit will come and begin to influence John from his mother's womb without seeing that God is, if, in every sense of the word, pro-life. He is in favor of life. And the child in the womb is alive, able to be influenced by the Spirit of God. And I'm not being political here. This is just the Bible. And God is going to fill him with the Spirit even from that point. And you notice he goes on and explains John's mission. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's a prophet. He's going to begin to bring this national repentance. Come back to God. Return to your God that you might be ready for Him when He comes. And many will come to God through... John's ministry. He will proclaim that salvation is about to come. Forgiveness of sins is about to come. In fact, his ministry is going to impact families. Note verse 17. And he will go before him, that he, is, he will forerun, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children. What an extraordinary statement. That he is not when people come to the Lord, when people turn back to the Lord, You know what? That begins to impact their relationships in their homes. It begins to impact fathers' hearts as they come alongside the mothers and they begin to minister and point their children to Jesus. John's ministry is going to revolutionize not only people's relationship with God, but people's relationship with one another. That fathers are going to begin to act like fathers. There was an interesting article that the USA Today wrote. By the way, that's not a Christian newspaper if you're uh, unsure. USA Today in 2004, they would never write this today. But in 2004, they wrote an article entitled, Do Evangelical Protestant Fathers Really Know Best? They said, I quote the paper, Religious congregations give young families social support and enforce certain norms about what it means to be a good father. Protestant men are more likely to show affection towards their children than religiously unaffiliated men. They are more likely to want to know what's going on in their children's lives. And committed Protestant men have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any singular group in the United States of America. You see what happens. The gospel begins to change us, doesn't it? And John, the angel says to John, when he brings people back to the Lord, these men are going to return to their kids and the family is going to be reconciled. He goes on and says in verse 17, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just people are going to flee from disobedience to God's wisdom, all according to verse 17, to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. And so John's going to lead this repentance that many people who will end up following Christ will do so because of John's ministry, in their life he is what the prophet isaiah foretold 700 years before our brother craig read for us this morning he is the voice crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god in fact verse 17 says he will come in the power and the spirit of elijah the angels referring back to the book of Malachi. In fact, you may want to turn there. I'm going to, I'm going to turn there. Malachi is, if you go towards the beginning of your Bible, you you pass Mark, Luke, and then the last book in the Bible, Old Testament, is Malachi. Malachi is the last revelation of God to His people prior to, um, to the New Testament. And in Malachi chapter three and verse one, God says through the prophet. Behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And so God foretold when before I come I'm going to send a forerunner a messenger who will get people ready for me. And then you look in chapter 4 of Malachi, the last two verses of the Old Testament. He says behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And the angel shows up and says, John is going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be like Elijah. He's going to be bold and courageous and faithful and unfailing. Why? Verse 6. Last verse in the Bible of the Old Testament. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Does that sound familiar? You see, what the angel is saying is that God is going to do what He told you guys going to do. Now it's been 400 years since he made this promise, but he has not forgotten. You know, Christianity is not a new religion. We don't get the New Testament is not separate from the Old Testament. It's one story of redemption of God working, and God is finally answering his his promise to send a forerunner before the Messiah, someone who will come and announce that he's here. He's like the the man who says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, right now batting number whatever it is." That's John's job. Behold, he'll say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will point people to Christ the Messiah as the Lord had said. Now it's been 400 years since God made that promise. That is a long time. And we can't can't even understand that. It's about twice the length of our nation's existence. And some people say God must be slow in keeping his promises. Well, maybe it's you and I count. But not as God counts. It doesn't matter how long ago he promised it. He's going to keep that promise. In fact, the name Zachariah means God remembers. And the name Elizabeth, interestingly, means my God is faithful. God is faithful. He's going to send John the prophet to get people ready for the Messiah. He's coming and God is keeping his promise. In fact, Jesus is, thinks very highly of John. Maybe you know this, but over in Luke chapter 7, Jesus speaks of John in verse 28. And Jesus says of John, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, right? Of all those born of women, which is everyone, right? John's the best, okay? Keep that thought in your mind. Yet, the one who is in the least of the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John's the best, But the least who's made it into the kingdom of God is greater than John himself. You see, John is great because he's given a great job, but those in the kingdom are great because they are given something far greater than a great job, namely the righteousness of Christ. And the one who has actually made it into the kingdom of God, even the most insignificant, is greater than the greatest of the greatest. Have you made it into the kingdom of God? Are you in the kingdom Jesus Christ has come into this world to live a perfect life and to die upon a cross for sinners like me and like you, and three days later rose from the dead, paying the debt of sin, inviting us into his kingdom, inviting us to make him our king. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know this, right? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is John's job to proclaim, get people ready for the Lord. Well, lastly, I want to consider God's compassion in blessing a couple. Just to kind of sum up where we are at in the story. Zachariah's there in the temple, right? He's talking to an angel. He says, you're going to have a son. And by the way, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, that's a lot for an old man to take in, right? There's a lot going on there. And, and Zechariah is struggling a little bit with this. You notice verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Right? He could have said a lot of things here. He could have said, I'm overwhelmed. He could have said, wow. Right? He could have said, okay. He could have said, please tell God I said hello. Right? Maybe he could have just been quiet. Maybe it's better not to speak at all. But he says, well, wait a second. How am I supposed to know this for certain? I'm old. And my wife is no spring chicken. Right. How, how am I supposed to believe this? And it kind of reminds me of that story when, remember when Peter's in prison and he's about to be killed after the Passover and the whole church gathers to pray together, God, please let Peter out of prison. And God says, okay. And he sends the angel and he wakes Peter up from his sleep and Peter is freed from prison and he runs to the very house in which they're praying and he knocks on the door and the girl comes and she looks and it's Peter and she slams the door in Peter's face and she runs back to interrupts the prayer meeting and says, it's Peter, he's outside. And they all say, no, it can't be Peter, he's in prison. Right? They're praying for him to be released, but they don't even believe that God can answer their prayers. And this is Zechariah here. He said, I don't believe it. I don't believe you. Prove it to me. Okay, now just think about that statement for a moment because he is talking to an angel. And he is in the temple, in the holy place. By the way, the angel is described this way uh, in the book of Daniel. It's the same angel. His face is like lightning, his body like stone, his arms glow like bronze, and his eyes like burning lanterns. And Zachariah says, listen, I'm going to need a sign from God on this one. Right? You know, is there anyone else I could talk to? Right? Unfortunately, the angel does not take lightly to this. You know, Zechariah says in verse 18, I'm old. The angel responds in verse 19, and I am Gabriel. I'm Gabriel. The Bible tells us there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's a poetic language. I don't think we're meant to compute it. But there are thousands, perhaps millions of angels. Two are named. One, Michael. Michael shows up to fight, right? And so you don't want Michael to show up in your bedroom. That's a bad day for you. The other angel is Gabriel. Gabriel always shows up when there's an important message to be given. And so if you get one of these guys, I mean, that's a big day. And here it is, Gabriel talking to, to Zechariah. In fact, he, he shows up and, and he, he, he says to him, I am Gabriel, verse 19, who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this news to you. Do you know where I just was, Zechariah? I was just standing next to God, and God said, hey, Gabe. I said, yes, sir. And he says, I got a message for you. Go tell that priest, Zachariah, he's in the temple right about now, that his prayers have been answered. This is not my idea. I didn't come up with this. I'm just a messenger. And I have come to bring you this good news, to bring you literally this gospel. In fact, you want a sign. I'll give you a sign, verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. You're going to be quiet now. You don't need to talk anymore. You just need to go to your room and think about what you said. This is like a nine month timeout for Zechariah. In fact, he's not only made mute, he's made deaf. We'll learn that later in Luke chapter 1. They had to make signs to him to communicate to him. Verse 62 of chapter 1 tells us he's mute and he's deaf. Now, can you imagine your whole life you've been speaking for god and finally god shows up after 400 years to speak and he speaks through an angel to you and you can't even tell anyone about it you can't even listen to their questions you you can't give this incredible story you can't go home and say hey honey guess what happened to me when i was at work today right and 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 he's mute he can't say what god has done the angel makes him mute i think oftentimes by the way that you and i act like zachariah even though we're not mute we pretend as we are, and we have incredible news to share, and yet we keep it to ourselves. And Zechariah was unable to share this. Meanwhile, the people outside are wondering what's going on. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. What's taking so long? They must have thought this is, this is a dangerous place to be. You don't, you don't mess around inside the temple. There's fear that you might dishonor God. Perhaps they're thinking maybe he gave in to the temptation and kind of looked behind the curtain. And maybe he's not coming out. They begin to wonder what's going on. And finally, he does appear according to verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So hes I don't know if he's doing the mime or how he's trying to communicate this to them. He makes these signs. He's supposed to give the blessing, the, the Aaronic blessing for number six. And he comes out and opens his mouth and nothing comes out. There's nothing. And he couldn't do the blessing. He couldn't tell them that God had finally spoken. Evidently, they're aware that something miraculous has happened. Maybe it's his countenance on his face because they realized that he had seen a vision. Verse 23 says, And when his time of service was ended, he went home to his wife. I I find that amusing. He had to stay and finish his job. You notice that? He still had another week of sacrificing animals. He couldn't go home and tell Elizabeth this. And he, day after day, deaf and mute, he's sacrificing animals until his week is over. And then he races home to play charades with Elizabeth. Right? Two words, two syllables rather. Sounds like maybe, um, you know, trying to communicate this to her. I mean, uh, I, I really, this is one of those, you know, you have your list of questions to ask when you get to heaven, this will be one of them. What was that like when you came home And you told Elizabeth without being able to hear or speak, I spoke to the angel Gabriel. We're going to have a baby who's the promised forerunner of the Messiah. Right? I got to think Gabriel's gathered with his angel buddies laughing. Well, check this out. Let's watch this over here. Right? But you better hope that she's literate because you're in real trouble if she's not. And chances are she might not be. Well, evidently she gets it. Verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she, kept herself hidden. I love the simplicity there. There's no fanfare as we launch the New Testament. The beginning of the steps of the new covenant, salvation is coming. The sunrise of righteousness is dawning, and it's just simply she can see it. She would keep herself in seclusion for five months. We're not sure why, but I do do know um, from my family that when a woman is first pregnant, she becomes somewhat nervous because she's not sure if people will think that she's pregnant or, or maybe, uh, she's visiting the buffet a little too much, right? And so, may, I don't know if that's the case, but, um, and so she hides herself for six months. If you're 65 and barren, no one assumes you're pregnant, right? And, and so she's hidden. I mean, she can't tell them I'm pregnant because then they think, well, she's barren and crazy because no one's going to believe this story. And so there she is in seclusion, this old lady in maternal bloom. Praising God. I don't know what you picture her doing for those five months. Maybe making baby blankets or getting the nursery ready or rubbing her belly or praising God for a mute husband. Um uh, Yeah, I can see her that's you. Ladies, you can understand that. What one hand raised, one hand on the belly, thank you, God, for this baby and my mute husband. All my answer all my prayers have been answered. I win every argument for the next nine months. I mean this is a blessing on her, isn't she? Well, verse 25, we end this story. Thus, the Lord has done for me in these days when God looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. I want you to see her now focusing on God as she understands that God ministers to hurting people. You see what this child meant, not for the world, but for Elizabeth, for this one single woman, nobody from nowhere. And she says, God knows me. God loves me. And we like to joke about Zachariah, at least I do. But you realize this angel is addressing him in a place of profound pain. I mean, he, he, is, he is speaking right into this wound. He's trying to give him hope in a place that has only been hard and difficult. Maybe there's times of hope for them. Maybe, maybe sometimes Elizabeth will wake up earlier in their, pre, their, their marriage thinking, I feel a little dizzy today. Maybe this is it. Only weeks to find out it's not it. Maybe there were miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. Maybe there was this hope and then disappointment. Hope and then disappointment. And then you have all this scorn heaped up on her. I wonder what's wrong with Elizabeth. God certainly doesn't think highly of them. He obviously doesn't want them to multiply. And It's clear that the Bible tells us that her barrenness is not a result of her sin. But did she know that? Do you not think that she and her husband got down on their knees and prayed, God, is what, what is wrong with us? What have we done? Help us know so we can turn from it. All we want is a child. This is great pain in their heart. And the pain of the past trumps at times the promises of God. And he says, I'm sorry. I don't believe you. This has been too hard for me. And some of you, I think, can understand this because there are many ways to be barren, aren't there? I mean, it may not be childlessness for you, but maybe the career did not become what it was supposed to be or maybe you're single and wish you were married or maybe the marriage is not what you planned or maybe your health is falling and you struggle to believe that God is good and powerful and compassionate in the midst of your pain. I want you to see the character of God in this story because this story is not simply about God's plan to begin to redeem the world. It is that. It's primarily that. But it's also about God's compassion on two hurting children of his. So they miss the blessing of children. This pain in them. God wants to bring them joy. Didn't you just hear that? You're going to have joy that's who God is. God, I, I, mean, aren't you, I get excited. Aren't you excited for them? I mean, I mean think about John and Lauren and, and, and Shannon and all these. Ba- I mean, makes me want to try for number eight. I mean, this is awesome. These children, are, praise the Lord for them. They have that. And is made mute, I think, to get him to think about what he has said. And you know, Zachariah will learn. Let me just show you. I know our time is up, but Zachariah's muteness is over. Look in chapter 1 and verse 64. His tongue is loosed. And you know what? The first things that come out of his mouth, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed. And he spoke, what is it? Blessing God. The first thing he would say would be praise to God. Just like Elizabeth here with this baby in her belly as she is praising God. You see, God didn't need to do it like this. He didn't. He could have brought John about a hundred different ways. But God wanted to do two things at one time. He wanted to show his faithfulness to the world to keep centuries-old promises that he would begin a work of redemption that would impact every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And at the same event, he wanted to have compassion on two individuals. We will see this throughout Luke. Please don't grow numb to the compassion of God. He is tough. And tender. He is mighty and merciful. He is powerful and compassionate. And John would have this special role for humanity and a very personal role for his mother and his father. And she knows it. She says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. My shame is taken away. He's taken away my shame and she praises God for it. Has he done that for you? Has he taken away your shame? I lived for 18 years of my life in total rebellion against this God who made me and loves me. Rejecting him in every way that I could. I was filled with shame. I continue to sin, by the way. Filled with shame. And so do you. And yet Jesus Christ would come after John and he would endure the cross, scorning its, you know, shame. He would take it on himself. He would take all my shame off me and he would place it upon himself and there he would die bearing the wrath of God for sinners who would trust in him. He wants to lift your shame off you. He would take your shame on himself right now that you might know him, that you might praise him. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are faithful to your promise and compassionate to the hurting. Help us to know you do great and mighty works. Help us to know your compassion, even now. Bind up the hurting. Give them faith to trust in you. But help us also to see with eyes that you are working throughout this world. And nothing will stop you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.